so last week we did. We've looked the last two weeks. James did a great job, and, entered, and then also Bray, you did a fantastic job last week. Psalm 1 and Psalm 23. So how do, the soul is nurtured. The soul is nurtured by God, like a tree planted by the waters, Psalm 1, like a, 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 a sheep, like a lamb that is being led into a pasture um, by a sh- good shepherd. And it's a beautiful picture in the last two weeks of, of what God desires of, of each one of us, to be nurtured by him. What I want to do this morning is look at not each individual one of us, but all of us together. What does God want from us? What does God desire for us as a collective body called the church? That's what I want to look at this morning. And um, this is um, uh, this is entitled When the Church Catches Fire, and it comes out of Deuteronomy 4, and I'm going to get to Deuteronomy 4 and my observation out of Deuteronomy 4 for the church today. I really don't know why God led me to Deuteronomy 4. I have no idea why I'm teaching on it, but I believe God does. I really mean that. I'm still like, Lord, why? Out of Deuteronomy 4, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, am I bringing a message to the church for today? Like, you would think that it'd be someplace in the New Testament. But I want to challenge your thinking this morning that God wants to set the church on fire. But we've got to understand why we're burning, right? <laughs> I mean, if we're going to be set on fire for the Lord, we really have to ask the question, why in the world do, are we to be set on fire? What is really our purpose? I've been a Christian a long time. And... I've been thinking about this. What is our purpose as a body of believers? I mean, truly, when you think about it, when you roll out of bed on Sunday morning, you gather up the kids, you get in the car, and you drive here, do you do it because you did it last week? Or do you do it because there's a a deeper desire or a, a deeper purpose in your life of why we exist called the church? See, God wants to give us a message this morning, but we first need to be reminded of why we do what we do, right? What do you think? I mean, seriously. I was reading up, you know how I love surveys. Well, I love surveys. And this particular survey says that 20, only 25% of Americans know their purpose in life. Only 25%. Think about that. And then I wrote in my notes, that's super low. That's super low. That is like, you've got to be kidding me. 75% of Americans are playing bumper car with their lives. I mean, you think about it. They're just bumping off of ideas and thoughts and kind of getting through life without some grand central understanding of what their purpose is. And, and, and I'm afraid that oftentimes we kind of settle in in church called the body of Christ, and we're not sure really what's behind all this. Why are we doing what we're doing? What do you guys think? I mean, if I were to ask you the question, and I would love some participation, what would you say is the purpose of the church? What would you say that would boil it down for you? This is personal, so there's no wrong answer here, okay? You come for the donuts, that's all right. It's okay. It's part of it. 
right? Or the coffee. There's free coffee in the back. Or our friends come. Yes. Okay. On the beach, same. Someone said community. I thought they said unity. And they said community. And it's both. We are to be a unified community, right? And community means what? What do you mean by community when you say that word? What do you have, what thoughts come to mind? Yeah. Yeah. Connecting with others, and I'm going to connect that with another idea, for the purpose of what? For the purpose of what? Yeah, yeah. Doing life together? Did I hear doing life? I heard doing. Yes. Yeah, there you go. That's, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what? Yeah, and so the church actually gives us a purpose. By being together, we have a purpose by being together. And, and we've got to find out what that purpose, because if 25% of Americans are still trying to figure out their purpose in life, if that were applied to the church, 75% of us are still going to church, and we're not really sure why. Now, we may be going for this little reason or that little reason, or a friend or a family, or I'm a kid, and my parents brought me, and it's kind of like, obligation or it's part of what we do as a family but there's got to be a central drive to that and and I and I want to suggest something to you uh, many years ago I read a book and I was talking to my son this weekend about it uh, I read a book and I've mentioned this book before and I seriously read the book going why did I just read that book it was so long it was called the overstory does anybody read that you're reading it, so I'm going to give it away, and I'm going to tell you the answer to the book. And the answer is keep going because it makes sense at the end. Because it's the story of nine lives and their relationship with trees. And then at the end, they all come together for a common purpose, and they are intertwined with a common passion and desire to save the old growth. And, and the, the, the premise of the book is that there's, there's these tall trees, these tall trees on the earth, this old growth that is, um, uh, that is threatened by humanity, greed, profit, overpopulation, all sorts of reasons, according to the book. And these nine people that have a passion for trees come together and their roots are like intertwined, just like trees' roots get intertwined. And, and I was reading another book that talked about aspen trees and how aspen trees, it's not that I'm an andrologist, it's just I read a couple books, that these roots grow together. So an aspen tree looks like it's an individual aspen. It's not. An aspen tree is connected to a system of roots that has multiple aspen trees. I never knew that because you don't see that. All you see is an individual aspen. Redwoods have shallow roots. They're vulnerable. But you know what they do? Underground, they interconnect. And when they interconnect, they become stronger. And so my thought is, I think that's the church. 
I think we are a community of people that are interconnected, that were once individuals, separate, isolated, and now we have joined together to become unified as a, a new body of believers with a purpose. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And I believe the purpose, I mean, you could say it in lots of different ways. You could say, we're all about fervent love, 1 Peter 4.10. We're about the Great Commission, Matthew 28.18-20. We're about edifying, building one and up, Ephesians chapter 4.11. You could look at all different verses and say, this is what the church is about. This is what church should be doing. I think the central idea is the interconnectedness, the rootedness of one another, that we are stronger together. That's why you come here. That's why you're part of a body called the, called the church. C.S. Lewis did not like going to church. And I, you know how much I love C.S. Lewis. He didn't like the bells. He didn't like, the ordin- he didn't like all the, the liturgy and, and the, the singing and all that. He didn't like all that. But why he went to church, he felt compelled to go to church. Not because he necessarily got all these things met in the church for his own personal well-being, but because he felt interconnected with a group of people that were very different than himself. And when he sat next to a painter or he sat next to another individual or a man off the street, what happened is his heart got literally melted. And he said in one particular statement that he did not even have the stature to be able to to step into that man's shoes. And he, there was a sense of humility. There was a sense of necessity of seeing somebody else as so valuable, though in, maybe in society they're not as valuable, at least you think they might not be, him being a PhD English professor you know, of medieval studies at Cambridge and Oxford and and an author and such a brilliant human being, and yet he did not feel as though he could step into a man's shoes sitting next to him who was just a man off the street. And what I find is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and I know I'm really going deep into this because I want us to recapture the vision of our church, of why we exist. And I've come to this understanding And then I'm going to give you what God gave me out of Deuteronomy as an encouragement of how we strengthen and embolden that vision, okay? That's what I'm doing this morning. It's kind of like a little random, but stay with me. Here's my thought. Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to summarize it for you. We were once separated, Jews and Gentiles. It'd be like, this is the dividing line, and you can't cross over, and you can't cross over, and you are the Jews, and you are the Gentiles. Totally different mindset, completely different cultural, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, nations, um, um, religions, beliefs, everything. Completely separate. You have nothing in common, and there is a dividing line here. And Christ comes, and what does he do? He breaks down that dividing wall, and what happens? We become unified. No matter what your background is, no matter what your way of life is, no matter where, what nation you're from, or whatever. I mean, kids understand this better than adults. I mean, this is something that I saw when our kids went to, went to high school. And they, were, they brought all their friends from different parts of the world, and they're all Americans, we're all a melting pot, and, and, 
It was so beautiful to have all these different people from young people from all different walks of life in different parts of the world. And these are their friends. They don't see any difference. It's not like they're trying to draw a line between this group of people versus that group of people. And I love that. And that's the picture of the church that Paul is painting in Ephesians 2, that we are formally separated. Now we've been divided. We're a new humanity for the purpose of Ephesians chapter 3, to steward the mystery of the gospel. There it is. I think the purpose of the church is to be unified, interconnected, rooted together as one another as best as we can for the purpose to steward what is. And steward comes from the word household. We are like, the, 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 we've been entrusted with the household of God, all the things that God has in his house. We are his stewards. We're, we're literally a slave to, or a servant, that a household would have a servant that would manage all of the activities of the household. And a household was made up of workers, indentured slaves, servants, family, extended family. The household in the Roman world was a larger group of people all interconnected to survive. And Paul says we've been stewarded now with the mystery of the gospel and we proclaim that we're ministers, it says in Ephesians 3, of all that God created so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, this message of the mystery of Christ that unifies all people and restores people into relationship with God, goes so far out in the world, Paul uses an hyperbole and says, it even extends up into the heavens and the angels hear the message. That's how passionate the church needs to be about its purpose. That's why we come together. The church is the only organization on the face of the earth that exists for people that aren't in it. Think about that. We exist for the sake of other people because we hold the mystery. Now, let me jump right into it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and here we are. Here's God's encouragement to us to continue to be emboldened with that purpose. Here we go, and I'm going to give it to you. Deuteronomy 4, as God's people prepared to go into the promised land, Deuteronomy is the final of the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It tells the story of creation. It tells the story of what happened and what went wrong. And it also tells the story of the beginning of the redemption of how God is going to restore all things. And God chooses redemption through the people of Israel and says, I'm going I'm to create a people, Genesis 12, for myself. And they will be a blessing to all the world. And I'm going to give them a land and I will prosper them so that whoever blesses them will be blessed by me. They exist for people that are not part of their nation. You see that? The church exists for people that aren't here. That's my passion is to see that what God is doing in the Old Testament is what he's doing in the New Testament. It's a consistent message all the way through. It's not like one message over here and one message over here. It's not that was then and this is now. It is one message. God chose his people to be a blessing to all the nations. And so he was preparing them and said, 
Let me tell you something that you need to know that will embolden your vision and your purpose for your life. So if you're still trying to figure out what your purpose is for life, let me help you. Deuteronomy chapter 4, two things. Be devoted to God because God is devoted to you. There it is. That's what God wants for the church today. That's what I've been thinking about. Be devoted to God because God is devoted to you. It's as simple as that. It's boiling down our faith to this one thing. Our devotion to God is so important because we see the depth of his devotion to us. Let me explain it. So here it is. Be devoted to God. He begins, oh, listen, Shema. This is actually the same thing is said over in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. The Shema was the saying of the Jewish people that was so holy that they would say it, they would write it, they would speak it, they would put it on the doorposts of their homes, they would kiss it because to say the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6.4. That sounds a lot like Matthew 22, doesn't it? 37, all the way to verse 40, where a Jewish man asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He says, it's the Shema. comes right out of Deuteronomy 6. But here in Deuteronomy 4, God says, listen, people, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to the statutes and perform them so that you may live and go in the land and take possession of the land, which is from the Lord. The God of your fathers is giving it to you. Don't add to the word. I'm commanding you, keep the commandments of the Lord, verse 2. And we read that and we go, oh, that's the Old Testament. I mean, seriously, keeping the commandments of God, haven't we got away from the law? Follow me here. We're no longer law-based. We're grace-based in the church, right? You've heard that over and over again. We're covered in grace. Where the multitude of sins exists, grace abounds all the more. That the the law, the Old Testament, the commandments that God is asking of the people to obey no longer applies to us because we now live in an era of grace. And yet what I want to suggest is that when we identify and understand and are devoted to God on the basis of our commitment to him in obedience, we are living out of his grace, that it still applies today. See, he'll go on to say, look, at I've taught you the statutes and the judgments, verse 5, just as the Lord my God commanded me. So keep them, do them, so that this is the wisdom and your understanding the sight of the people who hear these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation. This is a wise nation. This is a nation that has a God. For what great nation is there that has a God so near that it is as, as it is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? In other words, identify another nation that has this good of a God. And the way you'll know that is by our ability to, to be devoted to the commandments of God. And we think, well, well, that message is an old message. That doesn't apply to us. James chapter 1. What does James chapter 1 say at the very end of chapter 1? He talks about not being a doer of the word, but what? A hearer. See, we know that. A, a person that's just a doer of the word, 
a hearer of the word, looks at, looks at himself in the mirror, and as soon as he sees himself and walks away, he forgets what he looked like. That's how quickly we often read the word, and then we walk away and do our own thing. And I'm guilty of that. We're all guilty of that. This is one of our great challenges. And yet what we find here in this passage is the exact same thing James is trying to elevate the church back into, which is a respect and honor of the commandments of God, obedience to the Lord. Matt, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7 uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, remember the last thing he said in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, here's the wise person. Here's the person who's blessed. They don't simply listen to the word. They do the word. And here's an example. They're like the person who builds a house on what? On what? Rock. On a foundation. The person that actually goes out and consults with God before making a decision and really has not this active desire to be obedient is like the person with a strong foundation because the storms are coming and when the storm comes, the person that's built the house on the sand, what happens to the house? Gets washed away. So he's giving us a picture of what happens in life when we choose to have a foundation in God versus just deciding to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Be devoted to him. Listen. Keeping his promises. Doubling down on your devotion to God is really what he's saying. Now, how do we do that? Now, in Deuteronomy 4, the way in which we do that, by the way, is identifying lesser devotions. Identifying things that God created that became idols. And so he talks about that later down. Watch yourselves carefully since you do not see any form of on the day of the Lord spoke to you in Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly or make graven images for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male and female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. What's he doing? He's identifying all of creation, all of the goodness of creation that exists for our enjoyment, that God created good things that become greater things, ultimate things. And the reason why in the commandments that we understand that we are not to have a greater God than God himself in our lives is because it distracts us and takes away all of our energy, takes away all of our power, takes away all of our focus. And then when the storms come, there's no foundation. We have nothing to stand on, nothing firm to stand on. And so I think hidden in this gem of a passage is not only the the suggestion that we should double down on our devotion to the Lord. And I'm not talking about just work harder. I'm not talking about just, you know, get down on yourself if you, if you, dis, if you, you disobey or, or you're not willing to listen to God's word in this area of your life. But I will say, begin to identify other devotions in your life that may have taken the place of God. And in the process of doing that, what you are actually doing is you're increasing your desire for God. And I did that. I did an inventory. Just to, just to be really super honest with you, I, I, I wrote, recently did that, and it grieved my heart 
to see some glaring things that I hold more dearly sometimes in my life than God himself. And I can identify them. And I think that is a worthy um, exploration of taking time in your out of your day to write, Lord, what is it that I'm really devoted to? What are the things in creation? What are the things that I put? Maybe it's my, my well-being. Maybe it's my health. Maybe it's my children. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's something else in my life that I hold dearly that you've given to me, but I've put so much value in it, it has become an ultimate thing in my life. And I'm so devoted to it. When that thing begins to crumble or there's problems or concerns, what happens is I get really upset. Because I'm so attached to this thing, now I'm upset, and I recognize why I'm so, I'm so upset in life. Now I understand why I'm so unsatisfied. Now I begin to see what is the yearning in my heart. Why am I struggling? If it's true that in Psalm 23 that we have no lack because God is our shepherd, why are we still lacking? The reason why we're lacking is because our devotion, as C.S. Lewis once said, is not too strong, it's too weak. Our desire for him is too weak. Why? Because we've given our desires away to something else. You increase your desire for God by decreasing your desire for other things. I don't know, I'm not talking about some Eastern approach to life that we simply ignore the reality of life and our desires. I'm simply saying that we begin to put things in the right perspective. And we begin to see, wait a minute, that's not my God. That is not my ultimate God. That's a good thing that God has given me, my family, my opportunities, my, my work, my relationship, my marriage, my children, whatever it is. The things you've given to me to the steward in this world, those are good things, but they're not ultimate things, and I don't worship them. And when I do, when all of a sudden when they begin to crumble or some, there's a problem there, I also notice my temper going up. I notice something happening within me. And so I begin to put them in back in proper perspective. And then what happens is my devotion to the Lord increases. Does that make sense? Now, the second thing that he goes into is be devoted to God because God is devoted to you. God doesn't leave us hanging. God doesn't hold us out there to dry saying, now you better get at this and get it done. And I'm going to be watching you. And that's sometimes how we have this perspective of God out of the Old Testament, right? That God's looking down on us and telling us, you better get this right because I'm, I'm, I've got this watchful eye. And we walk away from that feeling so demotivated. But I want to re-motivate you because what I see in this is three characteristics of God, and here they are. God is a covenant God, God is a jealous God, and God is a consuming fire God. And in all three of those, we learn the nature of God and how loving, committed, and sacrificial he is in our lives, which motivates us to be even more devoted to him than anything else in the world. It all comes together. And so just quickly, a covenant God, he even mentions his covenant in verse 13. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. So he's, he's, respond, he's, he's referring to the, the, the Ten Commandments. And it was God's covenant. But God, all throughout the Old Testament, had these various covenants. What's a covenant? A covenant is simply an arrangement between two parties. That's all it is. It's like marriage. There's a marriage covenant 
that you enter into that's, a, that's an arrangement, a commitment, or contract between two people, and you get the certificate. I do these things all the time. I sign their, their wedding certificate. It goes back to the, to the state or the county, and then they get this official document that says you're now married, right? That's a covenant. And sometimes we think that's what God's entering into with us. It's this covenant relationship. I'll do something for you. You do something for me. But let me tell you about the covenant of God. This is the first thing I learned when I went to seminary many, many years ago. I was so blown away by this. It's called the Suzerainty Vassal Treaty. Suzerainty Vassal Treaty. It was a treaty. It was a covenant that was entered into in the ancient Near East with, with a, le- a, a greater power and a lesser power. And the greater power always had the upper hand because it had all the power. And the thing about this treaty that was so fascinating is the upper power, the more benevolent it was, the better the relationship with the lesser power. Benevolence ruled the covenant. Because it's always based on relationship. The best kind of covenants are based on relationship. They're based on love. God is so in love with us, he enters into a contract with us and says, here's everything I'm going to do for you. I'm going to provide for you a land. I'm going to make, I'm going to give you a land of milk and honey. I'm going to give you everything you desire. Even if you don't fulfill your side of the bargain, the whole Testament is a story of God's covenant relationship with us, even when we are unfaithful to him. Isn't that wild? That it's not like, well, you blew it, so that ends it. We'll see you later. That is not the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is you blew it and I'm jealous for you, but I'm so committed, I'm so in love with you that I'm willing to stay in the relationship and I'll do whatever it takes to win you back. That's the God that we have. Now, tell me, would you want to be devoted to that kind of a God who says that every time we fail and break his covenant, break the contract. He says, I love you. I love you. And I'm not going anywhere. Paul says that in Timothy. When we are faithless, he is faithful. It's, It's a beautiful picture. And that's a picture of marriage. Is it not marriage? Marriage is far more than a wedding certificate. It's a love relationship between two people that are willing to say, even when the other person is not loving, I will continue to love you. It's powerful. It's powerful. The second thing I learned from this is that God is a jealous God, and it's found there in verse 24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous jealous God. And he puts them both together, but I want to split them up simply by saying a jealous God is not an envious God. He doesn't, he's not filled with envy. It's not the way we think of jealousy. You know what another better word for it is? Zealous. God is zealous for you. Zealous is another way of saying, I am so committed to you, I'm not going anywhere. I love you because I'm a covenant God, but I'm committed to you because I'm a zealous God. And the words zealous talks about, his zeal talks about his, this utter devotion to us, his crazy love that is so much love that um, it's such a deep commitment He's not going anywhere, and he's going to stay fully, fully committed, even when we struggle. And you might say, 
well, I don't really feel that level of commitment from the Lord because I still have a lot of desires that aren't met by the Lord. So I'm looking at this relationship with God saying, Psalm 37, 4 says, Seek the secret delight in the Lord, and he shall give you all the desires of your heart. Well, I still have a lot of desires. Denise and I were in a conversation the other day with, with a wonderful couple, and we were talking about desire. And we were talking about what is it? What is it about God when he doesn't meet all of our desires? What do we do with that? That's a tough question. I mean, really, God's zealous for us? And yet what I, what I walked away thinking is God wants to refine our desires. Sometimes our desires might be misdirected. Maybe we think that's really our desire and what we want. I used to always pray, God, give me a million dollars. I promise I'll give you 50, 60% of it, right? And then I'll live off the rest. I'll give you 80. All I need is 20, right? But then I realized and began to realize, or like, Lord, I'm on a hike. I'm like, Lord, I'd love to find a, a, like a pot of gold or a diamond ring. I don't know, odd things, like strange. And I'd be like ruminating over, I'm going to find this like, stash of gold that somebody has hidden in the mountains somewhere, and I'm going to come across it. I, I'm a very strange person, I know, but that, I real, I'm just being really honest with you. And then I realized, what a kind of misdirected desire. Like, that is really not going to meet all the desires of my heart. It really is not. It ultimately isn't. And all the statistics show us that, truly show us that. You study happiness or look at the documentaries on it, it is not about that. It is about, it is about connectedness. It is about deep relationships. It is about the things that we would think are more important. And so God is this zealous God, and maybe they're misdirected. Maybe, maybe those desires are just not ready to be fully, uh, uh, fully developed and, f- and fully given over to us. Maybe God is hold, holding them back for a reason and waiting until we're ready. That could be the case. We don't know the answer to that, but we know that God is zealous, and in his zealousness, he is fully committed. That's what the word means. And the third thing I just end with is he's a consuming fire, which is so fascinating. Like, how is God a consuming fire, really? Seriously? A consuming fire. You think of a fire. Exodus 3, the burning bush, God appeared to Moses as a burning fire, and what did Moses do? What's the first thing Moses did when he saw the burning bush? He stepped back. I think he did, didn't he? Did he step back? He was alarmed. He noticed it. He noticed it, right? It says, I think the text tells you, he notices it. Like it's that one over there. And bushes would burn in the desert, right? They would just instantaneously combust. So it was not uncommon for a a bush to be to, to come across a, a bush on fire. But this one caught his eye. And then what did he do? He took off his shoes. This is holy ground. He came into the presence of God. I think the idea of a consuming fire, it's the complexity of God's nature that we don't fully understand. That I can't sit here and explain. The unfathomable nature of God is far greater than we will ever understand. That a, that a fire is beautiful. A fire brings light. A fire is warm and inviting. But a fire is very, very dangerous. It is dangerous. And you think of all those things, you think of God's fire. That is, it's his presence. 
It's also his judgment. Because God is so loving and so committed to us, his fire is his presence in your life, but also his power that wants to clear out all the dross. Remember in 1 Peter about the burning? Remember about the furnace? What's the furnace heated by? A fire, which does what? Burns the dross from your life. Stand back. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. You are in the presence of a God that's powerful and dangerous. And I think what it points to is treating God with tremendous respect and honor because of who he is as we enter into his rela- in a relationship with him. Ultimately, what does a fire do? In Luke chapter 12, Jesus will refer to himself as the one who consumes the fire of God. It's ultimately a sacrifice. It's 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah is on the mountain and he calls down what from heaven to burn the sacrifice altar? What's he call down? Fire. It's God's presence. It's God's fire that comes down and he's he's taking the sacrifice and purifying the people of God from their idolatry to bring them back into full devotion to him. It's full circle right there in that one incident. And that's a picture of God. We enter into a relationship with God fully devoted by identifying other devotions that may be taking the place of God and recognizing his devotion for us. And the greater we step into both of those, we will find that the church becomes a church on fire for another generation. That's my message. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, are now being invited into um, a final set of worship and the receiving of a communion that represents Jesus, you in Luke 12, as you said, you took the fire of God in your baptism. We are now going to enter into a time of worship and a time of receiving of the sacraments that remind us of your consuming fire on behalf of us. And we enter with a sense of great respect and great honor because of your greatness, reminded of your love and reminded of your commitment to us in Jesus' name. Thank you, Todd. So the elements are coming, and you can uh, pass them down the row. And uh, as Todd said, the covenant between God and ourselves culminates in our beautiful Savior, Jesus. Go ahead and just take that. Yeah, just pass them down. Culminates in our beautiful Savior, Jesus. He is um, that consuming fire. And in fact, on the cross... He, he, he faced our sin head on and consumed all of the evil uh, that was opposed to him. And his demonstration on the cross and in these elements, the bread and the cup, it, it represents the fact that Jesus is unconditionally committed to us. He's devoted to us. He shows us what God's love and his devotion actually looks like. May I take 
while you're passing it. Thank you. So Jesus even said at one point in time, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That, that renewal of the covenant that is on the basis of God's sacrificial love for us manifested through Jesus on the cross. And so we're invited into that. We're invited into um, the beauty of being in relationship with Jesus. And I'm, I'm reflecting on what Todd said, that the more we sort of live into the grace of these gifts, the more we give ourselves completely in devotion to Jesus, then what happens is we discover at an even deeper level how deeply God is devoted to us. And so if you wonder, if you ever wonder as you go through your day, well, I, I'm just not good enough. I'm not devoted enough. Just remember to look at the cross and see Jesus. That though we can't often keep our end of the covenant relationship, he always does. So we're going to celebrate together. I think the elements are there. And so I invite you, um, this bread, it represents Jesus' body. It was given for us. So let's take it and eat it together. And with those early disciples, he took that cup. He said, this represents the blood that's going to be shed on the cross. Take it. Drink it in remembrance of me. stand with me as we worship. See 
the power of your presence pour your spirit out God pour your spirit out pour your spirit out pour your spirit out pour your spirit out, your spirit out. we need your fire Jesus and pour your spirit
Lord, that is our prayer this morning. We need more of you. So may we see your power and your presence in our coming and our going, God. May we really feel the reality of who you are, God. Holy, powerful, and yet still so committed to us. Pursuing us, loving us, being with us every step of the way. So God, we turn our hearts to humility before you, God. Say, would you fan a flame in our hearts again for your presence and for your power, for the sake of our hearts, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our city, for the sake of our community, for the sake of those that don't know your goodness and your power. So we love you, God. May it be weighty in our hearts today and may it continue to transform us the way we think and the way we feel. each other, you know.